Some words from Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. We probably all remember where we were when we heard about the death of Princess Diana. It was a very strange time in the life of our country. We Brits are supposedly famous for our stiff upper lip, a rather pragmatic keep, carry on, keep calm and carry on attitude. But it seemed that in the week following those tragic events in a Paris underpass, we decided to set that aside for a while anyway. One of the most used phrases of the time spoke of a national outpouring of grief. And it's true, Diana had an ability to make a connection with people way beyond that of her contemporaries. But it was all the stranger for the fact that this grief, for the most part, was for someone whom very few of us had ever met or were ever likely to. I can't claim to be an expert on this kind of stuff, but amongst the explanations of what was going on was that this death opened up opportunities for previously suppressed or unexpressed grief to be released. As Prospect magazine put it a couple of months after Diana's death, when we mourned her death, we mourned our own. People wept for their own mothers and fathers, for lost children, as if all the unconsoled losses of private life had suddenly been allowed to seek public consolation. The people who placed bouquets on the railings of Kensington Palace might have been decorating their own family's graves. Last week we thought about honesty and lament within prayer. And it linked into that is the subject of grieving. We don't make much room for grief in our culture. Death is something we very much leave to the professionals. Very often when I'm with someone after a death, they will say something about not knowing what they have to do. And I often reply, in a sense, that's a good thing. Taking responsibility for all the arrangements after a death is something we don't actually have to do that often. If you've done it plenty and you know precisely what to do next and you aren't in a job like mine or you're not a funeral director, you've known a lot of sorrow. 
and we can allow ourselves a brief period after the loss but for many soon after mere survival or functioning takes over being there for other people people who genuinely need us is another factor within christian circles i've noticed a few other things that have crept in over my lifetime often today we don't talk about funerals we talk of thanksgiving services or celebrations of a life these days and there are good sound practical reasons for this within certainly non-conformist church circles we often have cremations or burials before the church service and the days of the coffin at the front of the church are fast disappearing but I do wonder if some of the inadvertent, unintended consequences of this is that we're sort of trying to keep death outside our churches. Do we create the impression that mourning is for other places, not the church? Now, I may be entirely wrong on this, and I certainly am not knocking choices that anybody makes. But I do sometimes wonder. Perhaps as Christians, we are also very much influenced by the promise that death is not the end. To quote the Bible, the person is absent from the body, but present with the Lord. Or we will sometimes hear, they're in a better place. If they've suffered in life, we might draw consolation that their suffering is now at an end. But when loss comes, as to each of us at some point it will, none of that should be allowed to get in the way of grieving. For contrary to the poem, death is not nothing at all. It does count. Something has happened and everything does not remain exactly as it was. We mourn because someone or something which mattered to us, which we loved, is lost. Grieving is a byproduct of love. Jesus didn't rationalise away grief, nor should we. The shortest verse in the Bible is Jesus wept. Oddly, we never read that Jesus laughed. No, I'm pretty sure he did. But we read of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, of Jesus mourning John the Baptist, and of Jesus weeping by the grave of Lazarus. He said, blessed are those who mourn, and perhaps modern psychology would back him up on that. Grief is a natural process, and hard as it is, it, is ex it exists for our healing. But equally, in today's passage we read, that Paul argues, we do not grieve like those who have no hope. At the heart of our faith stands the resurrection of Jesus. 
and the promise that exists for all that die in him that one day they too will be resurrected. Paul uses a lot of picture image and picture language in to envisage this moment. And this is a passage that's often misunderstood. Paul isn't speaking of some kind of rapture where we're all taken up into heaven. He's using an ancient image of a king returning to his home and the people going out to meet him on his way home. And then they join the king on his return. So the image of, isn't of Jesus meeting us all in the air and then swooping us up like some cosmic pied piper. It's an image of Jesus making his home amongst us. But let's not get overly distracted by the imagery. Because that can just obscure the key point Paul is making. That death and loss are tragic. They are worth grieving. It is right that we name it and mourn with stark honesty before God. But as we do so, let's remember that the last word still hasn't been spoken. The last word has, belongs to the one who has entered into death before us and emerged from it and prepares the way for us. His is the last word and his word is, I am the resurrection and the life. About nine, ten years ago, I did a funeral for a lady from my last church. She had been involved with a number of charitable organisations in her time, but she developed cancer and it eventually killed her. I remember a short article about her in the local paper and the headline read, Esme loses battle with cancer. I had a wry smile as I read it. Because I'm not sure that's how she would have viewed it. Yes, yeah, she knew what was coming and was sad to be leaving those she loved behind. She loved this life. She didn't want to lose it. She worried about how some of her loved ones were going to manage, as I'm sure most of us do. But she was someone who also had a real assurance that she was being held through it all. And as I flipped through the paper that day, and as I read that headline, I thought, yeah. Emmy Esme did lose that battle. But Jesus had already won the war. At Advent, we remember that we are people in waiting. And in that season of waiting, grief will be part of our experience. Sisters and brothers... Let's never be guilty of minimising grief. And let's never try to rush it or hurry others along the path. We'll all do it differently and at different paces. But equally, let's encourage one another. And let's not grieve as those without hope. For at Advent we remember that the last word is still to be spoken. The last word belongs to Jesus and it will be good. Grace and peace to you. Amen.